Hello and welcome back to a new episode of Parsha Lab. I'm Imu Shalev, your co-host, and the lovely rabbi across from me is... Rabbi David Foreman. Actually, believe it or not, guys, I am not across from Emu. Due to the wonders of modern technology, I am looking at Emu on my screen. He's actually just an office away. But we are choosing to look at each other on screens rather than in person. What does this say about us, Emu? That robots have taken over the world and that we've... We've processed even human interaction. It feels that way. Oh my goodness, I get the chills just thinking about it. Anyway, Emu, we're talking about Parshat Bo this week, right? That's true. Do you want to learn a little bit about Parshat Bo? I do. Can you please teach me? No, I think you're going to be the one teaching me, but I'm going to ask you some questions. You ready for that? I'm totally ready. Let's let's dive into the text. So last week we talked a little bit about the significance of the plagues uh, and, and just, you know, spiritually or morally... Why might God have chosen the, the specific plagues that he chose? And I wanted to um, to walk you through some things I noticed about the plague of Arbet. So Arbet has a very strange name. Does it remind you of anything, Rabbi Foreman, in reference to? Oh, it certainly to does. the Exodus? Yeah, it's actually something that I'll tell you about Arbet. Can you actually give me like an address and our readers, like if they're following along in Chumash, which, which chapter and verse would we be looking at now? Yeah, sure. Shemot, Exodus, 10, 3, 10, 4. Okay, great. So here we have, I'll just bring everybody into the actual verse here. This is Moses warning Pharaoh that if you refuse to set the people free, I am going to bring these locusts in your uh, in, in your borders. They're going to cover the eye of the earth. Strange language. Below you you'd be unable to see the land. They're going to devour everything in sight. They're going to fill your homes. And your forefathers have not seen anything like this. So, so one of the things that strikes me when just reading through these verses of Arba is something which seemingly has little to do with Arbet, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, and that's just the role of sight, which is just odd. Don't know quite what to make of it. But if you look at how the land is described here, when we talk about the locusts covering over the land, they're covering over the eye of the land, making it unable for a person to see the land. It's almost like there's a, a face-to-face uh, encounter between humans and land, which is being interrupted by this, these locusts. Right? It's like the land has an eye and you have an eye. With your eye, you see the land. I don't know what the land does with its, with its eye. But if you look at that language, that the locust is covering over the eye of the land, almost as that the land can't see you. And then, and then you can't see the land. And then a couple verses later, your forefathers who have come before you in time, they can't see. They've never seen anything like this. It's almost like if you extrapolate uh, sight in space and time, almost as, as if there's this something getting in the way in space between a human being encountering land and then something getting in the way in time, which is if you reach back all the way through the eons of time that your ancestors have never seen anything like this before. And I, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head here, but I wonder if this has, has anything to do with your question about the the word Arba and its meaning. 
and uh, what that sort of evokes. Because if I would sort of free associate after uh, on Arbe, to me, that word means something other than locusts. As a matter of fact, if you'd, you'd hit me and say, Arbe, where in the Torah, you know, and it's, a, it's, it's one of these uh, uh, family feud games, you know, our survey says. So I suppose our survey would say Arbe, the plague, but number two would be Arbe, the blessing, right? There's a great mm-hmm. blessing. That of 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 arbe 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 at I will greatly increase your progeny like the stars of the heavens, and uh, this is sort of the signal promise that God gives to the Jewish people. And it's odd here, and 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 maybe this goes to something you were talking about last week, talking about how these plagues develop, the plague of blood and the the plague of um, of, of Tzvardei, and we were talking about them as responses to the Egyptian sort of objectification of the Israelites and making them feel like creepy crawlies, it almost feels like Arbe is of a piece with that. In other words, Arbe, the blessing for the Jewish people was that we would increase very greatly. And when you read those words, Anochi Arbe, Arbe, Zaracha, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we're going to have all these children. But then again, the Egyptians didn't think that was so wonderful because, again, the paranoia of Egypt comes from Vayishritsu, uh, that, that the Jews are becoming so multiplous and they're like creepy crawlies and they're, they're like these insects. So to some extent, then, what what could the Arbe be symbolizing? So we see that there's these creepy crawlies and there's a lot of, a lot of them. Um, and that has something to do with the blessing of Israel to some extent, I, I wonder if the Arbes somehow are are a little bit like Israel. Um, take a look at how the Arba actually comes. So join me in in verse thirteen. So Vayet Moshet Mateu al Eretz Mitzrayim v'Hashem Nihag Ruach Kadim ba'aretz. There was an eastern wind. Right. So why specifically is this wind coming from the east? What's the east of Egypt? Well, to the east of Egypt would seemingly be the land of Canaan, and Saudi Arabia too. <laughs> That's true, but the land the land of Israel is to the east of Egypt. Um, and then when when Pharaoh asks Moshe to pray and remove the Arba, look at verse nineteen. Vayhapo Hashem ruach yam chazak meod vayisa et Arba vayitzkaehu yamasuf. How does he send the Arba home? He doesn't really send them home. He actually sends them with a a wind, a, a seaward wind, and he sends them to none other than mm-hmm. Yamsuf, which, as we know, will also be the destination of that the is of fascinating, Emo. Oh my goodness, look at that! That's pretty cool. So, what do you make? What, well, what do you what make of these connections? Is is that the the Arba seem to be connected in some way to to the Jewish people? It's almost as if the Egyptians have sort of negatively in their minds connected the Jewish people who have this blessing of Arba, 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 Zaracha, to be, to be very great. They've sort of interpreted in their minds that blessing as the Jews are creepy crawlies. Let's get rid of them. God then gives actually creepy crawlies to the Egyptians, but sort of keeps that connection between Arba and the Jewish people in that the destiny of the Arba is the destiny of the Jewish people. Yeah, the thing that also comes to mind for me is that if you link Arba back to the blessing of the Jewish people of Harbe Arba Zaracha, which I think it feels right, 
it's interesting because you sort of have to go back and look at the text. That language, when you have Anochi Harbe Arbe Atzaracha, it will greatly increase your progeny. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the metaphor there is There's two metaphors. There's the dust of the ground and there's the stars of the heavens. It's worth looking at which one is which with the language of Arbe. If I'm not mistaken, the Arbe language appears at the Akedah with God speaking to Avram after the successful test of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. That's when God comes out of the clouds and I think it's there. That would be Genesis chapter yeah, 21, 22 or something. I will greatly bless you and I will greatly increase your progeny. Both, both like the stars of the heavens and like the sand on the, the shore of the sea. So these are the two metaphors that appear here. Now, you're going to get a dust of the ground metaphor with... Jacob's blessing, and I wonder if the word Arba appears there as well. That's going to be in... Well, one second, because while, while you brought me here, just if we, if we read verse 16, the yep. one right before this, right? Vayomer binishbatan umashem ki asita et chasachta et Since you do not hold back your son. But that word chasachta, right, has a an interesting shoresh with a little bit of a double entendre yeah, that, that also applies here. Yeah, what Ima is referring to there is there's a double entendre in Chasachta that it just happens to be the same letters as a word that appears with Arba, which is Choshech. Uh, when the Arba is brought, the locusts are brought upon Egypt, they're brought in such a way that they darken the land. Remember that idea about being unable to see the land. The reason why you're unable to see the land is because Vatechshach Aretz, the land became dark. Chasachta, Ima was pointing out, is actually the same word as choshech. sin, of course, without the vowelization, is going to be either a sin or a shin, and then chaf, ar, is going to be choshech. So fascinatingly, just like arbe, uh, with arbe comes choshech um, in, uh, with Egypt, here too, uh, with uh, in the, in sort of the antecedent of arbe, at the Akedah, with arbe comes choshech. And, and to that I would add, Imu, that this gets to that strange point about seeing, which we talked about earlier, which didn't seem to have anything to do mm-hmm. with uh, uh, with Arba. Imu, take that further. What about seeing in this antecedent uh, for Arba? There's there's actually a little more. I wonder if we can extend it, not just Arba and Choshech, but maybe even to Makas Bechoros and even to the splitting of the sea, and if you read verse 16 and 17 way back in Genesis together, let me show you what I mean. So what's happening here? What's happening is Avraham here is ready to sacrifice his firstborn son. He does not withhold his firstborn son back from God. So what does God say? Since you did this thing, you did not hold back your firstborn son from me, right? And there's the double entendre of the choshech, right? Seemingly the opposite of holding back is darkness, not sure how. I will surely bless you. I'm going to greatly increase your children. Right? Like the stars in the heaven. Like the, the dust al svatayam. 
which we, we talked about last week, maybe being kind of a kinim thing, or maybe also a yamsuf thing, because look at the very next words. And your children will inherit the gates of their enemies. Right? And when does that happen? When do their children prevail against their enemies? Really after, I think, this, this marathon, right after Arbe and Choshech and Bechoros and the splitting of the sea is when Egypt is finally defeated. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I think you're pointing out something, I think, which is correct here, which is that the Yerushalayim, which is the end of the blessing that Abraham gets, it probably comes to its fruition with the climactic triumph that over uh, Egypt that begins... That, that ends with Makkah um, Bechorod and the splitting of the sea. Um, in line with that, I remember actually doing some work on this a while ago, I, it, arguing that there was a distinction between the first six and the last three plagues. The I last remember this. The last three plagues, Arba is the beginning of the last three, right? So it's almost as if uh, the argument I made mm-hmm. is that Arba, Choshech, and Makkah Bechorod are really just one plague that gets more and more intense. And it's a destruction plague. It's a retribution plague. It's not that in all of the other ones, there's this attempt to get Pharaoh, to educate Pharaoh. But like I argued in the Exodus you almost passed over, that attempt kind of fails right with plague number six, going into plague number seven. One second. Rabbi Furman, you wrote a book called The Exodus You Almost Passed Over? Where could I oh get a copy gosh, if I wanted one? product placement. You can get a copy of my book. Uh, the Exodus he almost passed over from Aleph Beta itself on our store. Uh, but in that book, I argued that the process of the education of Pharaoh fails at plague number six, going into plague number seven. And from that point on, there is no education. There's just getting the the, the Israelites out of the land. And Arba is the beginning of that. Um, and it's interesting if you go back and, and somehow... It's a mystery, but the beginning of this retributive process in the plagues seems to find, uh, I think what he was suggesting, is seems to find its genesis in this blessing. The blessing of the Akeda. Yeah. No pun intended. The, it's it's it finds its genesis, genesis back in Genesis, in Genesis. Where in Genesis you have uh, this promise that one day, your children, your Zera, will overtake the gates of their enemies. And here you have in Egypt, the Zera of, of the Israelites, uh, the progeny of the Israelites are disparaged. They're just seen as creepy crawlies, but it's the revenge of the creepy crawlies. And it comes in the form of Arba that eventually overtakes Egypt and leads them out to Yamsuf. Just, just the other piece I wanted to mention before is that the, the connections are even stronger to uh, the story of the Akeda with the... Uh, the Yira piece. I noticed you kind of avoided getting into that, uh, the oh, Rehia right. and the Yira. But that's what I was trying to get to, which was right. that, you remember what I was talking about now, which is mm-hmm. that um, not only is it, as Emu points out, that you have the Arba of, of, of Egypt going back to the Arba of Genesis. You have the Choshech of Egypt going back to the Lochasachta of Genesis. But before that, you also have the Rehia, the seeing, going back, because one of the themes which penetrates throughout the Al-Qaeda story is the theme of seeing. Over and over again, it's about seeing, it's about seeing, it's about encountering God, seeing God. And the word for seeing and the word for fear 
end up becoming uh, interlaced with each other. Re'ia or Yira, Yud Resh Aleph or or Resh Aleph Yud Hey. Uh, the mountain is called the mountain of seeing. Abraham sees it from afar. Um, the, he sees the lamb and the thicket. Everything is seeing, 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 leading up to fear. And here uh, you have exactly the same thing with the with the land being unable to see and you being unable to see. It really feels like we're getting the Akeda back in spades somehow in so, our back. So what what is the, the the symbolism here? Are you sort of saying that this is you know the true reality of Egypt, which is that they they treated the Israelites. Um, and their population explosion like a horde of locusts consuming all the food. And so that's exactly what would happen. These these Israelite locusts from the east would come in, consume all their food before fleeing from the land, which is exactly what they were worried. They were worried that the, the, the Israelites would actually leave the land, and they do. Um, and that it, it happens because the Egyptians can't see. Because what it means to see, uh, as described in Genesis, is to to have awe and reverence of God, um, and the Egyptians who choose to be blind choose not to see, um, somehow are are thrust into darkness. Is that is that sort of what you would something, say? Something like that. I mean, it's a little too early. One of the things we're doing in this podcast is we're sort of letting you into an early sort of brainstorming conversation. We almost probably should name it brainstorming through the parsha, and uh, and it's sort of meant to open up your thoughts as well. So I can't say that my thoughts on this are crystallized yet. But the connection to the Akeda seems clear. What its meaning is, I think, is really open to interpretation. But I think what you're suggesting is sounds solid, which is that, uh, again, if you go back to the argument I made in the Exodus you almost passed over, um, the argument there really was that the first six plays were a process of education about what? It was about educating Pharaoh, as you're suggesting, that there does exist a God in the world. And to some extent, that requires sort of an opening of eyes, a meeting. It's 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 almost can Pharaoh do the Akeda, right? Can Pharaoh uh, look to God, sort of you know face to face, and look that reality in the eye? And ultimately, Pharaoh flinches and willfully blinds himself. And it's almost like if you willfully blind yourself and you won't look up high and you'll look down below to the ground, so that all of a sudden there's this sort of retribution that the moment you willfully blind yourself and education is no longer possible, so then all of the unrequited labor and the 400 years and all of that, it's all going to come back now. There will be um, retribution for that. And the retributive process starts now, and it starts with a kind of blindness looking at the land and with that sort of, uh, uh, as you put it so well, the the creepy crawlies, which was the nightmare fantasy of Egypt, becomes real for them with real creepy crawlies. This is what it looks like uh, when you when you demonize humans. Uh, the humans are not demons, right? But your your nightmares can come back to haunt you um, when when the real Arba sets in, and uh, somehow that seems to be what's going on. What's the takeaway? What are your thoughts on sort of why this is all here and what we're meant to to learn from this? Um, I don't know. You know, one thing which seems to come to mind is, um, you know, the the notion of the dangers of 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 objectifying people. If you think about the the great sin of Egypt, and this goes back to a video series that Emo and I produced a couple years back, uh, the three great lies of the Exodus. The thesis of the three great lies of the Exodus was that 
the great lies of the Exodus that the Egyptians perpetrate are dehumanizing lies, are lies that take human beings and they attempt to get the populace to see them as something other than human, as just creepy crawlies, as just objects. And if that is the fundamental great crime of Egypt from which all other crimes spring, that is a powerful notion, right? The slavery springs from that. I'm willing to objectify you and make you into my tool. I'm willing to throw your kids in the Nile because they're not really human. They're just creepy crawlies. And it's a propensity that we as humans have. We normally get ourselves into cliques and groups. And, you know, my yarmulke looks different from your yarmulke and your, uh, my religion looks different from your religion. It's very easy to stick to your group. But when you take that a little bit too far, uh, you end up dehumanizing the other. And I think one takeaway is that God takes that very seriously indeed. Um, and when you dehumanize the other, uh, the way in which God's exquisite justice works is that your great fear is a lie, but your fear will come manifesting itself in some form of truth. And therefore, if you're willing to lie to yourself about creepy crawlies, you're going to have to deal with real creepy crawlies. And somehow that's the way God runs the world, that, there, that our, our fears are dangerous. And uh, we can make our fears a kind of self-fulfilling prophecies prophecy in ways that we might not even have imagined. Never will the people that we demonize truly become other, but the ways in which we disparage them will be things that we will have to contend with for the rest of our lives. It's almost like you need courage to be kind and generous. Yes, right? It, it's a kind of, a, you know, it's a Franklin D. Roosevelt kind of thing. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear is what causes us to demonize, you know, and uh, the kind of courage that you have um, to surmount that fear is the courage to see others as as, as human beings. Wonderful. Okay, I think we were Yotze Dvar Torah. We were. As you say, it's something you can say at the table. It might take you a long time to say it, but uh, feel free to share your thoughts. And if you share this around the Shabbos table, uh, any piece of it, let us know how it goes. Send us comments. And we'll write you a mitzvah note. That's right, we will. Anyway, guys, until next time, this is uh, Rabbi Foreman. And this is Imu Shalev. Thank you so much, Rabbi Foreman, for joining me in another fantastic episode of Parsha Lab. Now we have twice as many as we had last week. Um, and I hope you all come back next week for another fantastic episode on Parshat Vishala. So this is a new project, and we would love to have your feedback. Please send us an email at info at And don't forget to rate us at the iTunes store. 